Good morning. The title of our message this morning is The Cry of the Martyrs. And of course, our text is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Up here on that side, you may not see them very well. There's some books I have on uh, martyrs. Perhaps this is the place you like to start. It's Fox's Voice of the Martyrs. This tracks their early disciples on up the 20th century. It's, a, it's not too bad of a read. These others, some of them are more recent than others, imprisoned with ISIS, hearts on fire. All these are true stories of men and women around the world who have died specifically for their faith. If you like to take one of these and read them, I encourage you to do so, but please do not mark them. I put my name in, please bring them back. I like to have them for other people to enjoy as well. Um, they're here for you. It's something you do not hear a lot of in media and being reported, but there are people right now who are being heavily persecuted because of their faith. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary has an article called Christian Martyrdom, Who, What, and How, and it was published December the 18th of 2019, and is written by Dr. Todd M. Johnson, Professor of Global Christianity and Missions. He writes, quote, Christian persecution has captured the imagination of the media, mostly because of tragedy occurring in the Middle East. Stories of struggling Christians have been highlighted in The Economist, The Boston Globe, The Republic, and the BBC. We estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, more than half of which died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. We also estimate that one million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020, end of quote. LifeRay Research, which is the Christian Media Publishing and Distribution Division of the Southern Baptist Convention, has an article entitled, One in Seven Global Christians Face Persecution in 2021, and it was just published this year, January the 28th, 2022. And it was written by Aaron Ear. Earls, senior writer at Lifeway Christian Resources. He writes, quote, while churches in the U.S. attempted to recover from the pandemic in 2021, many Christians around the world were trying to survive increased persecution. According to Open Doors World Watch List, Open Doors World Watch List 2022, by the way, you can find them on the internet. Just type in Open Doors, you'll find them. Last year, more Christians were detained or killed for their faith, and more churches were attacked or closed than the year before. In the past year, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, suffered significant persecution for their faith. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. Let me read that again. Every day. In 2021, an average of 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. With close to 6,000 total martyrs, 2021 saw a 24% increase in Christians killed for their faith. 
Just let that settle in for a second. There are people who disagree with some of these stats, but they're out there. And that's just a small sampling of what you will find. You know, here in America, the United States, we have been blessed in so many ways. We do not face severe persecution for sharing our faith. The fact that we're assembled here together, had Bible study together, prayed together, sung praises to God together. Now here we're looking at God's word. Speaks volumes when compared to the rest of the world. That's not to say that people will not ridicule us or mock us or criticize us for our faith. But we haven't faced intense persecution like others around the world. The ones that our brothers and sisters have faced or are facing even now as I speak. We must stand firm and fervently pray for those in prison and tortured. And there is a crucial question that is found in verse 10 of our text today. And a clear answer is given in the text. It will get worse before it gets better. Because in God's own time, he will pour out his wrath on the unbelieving world. And before we get into it, looking at verse 9, this is some of the hardest prep I've had to do with. Because I'm dealing with divine justice. We must get it in our hearts, not just in our minds and our hearts, that divine justice is coming and coming soon. This must serve as a wake-up call for all of us to take the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations seriously. Look at verse 9. When the Lamb broke or opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain or slaughtered. See, one difficulty when approaching the fifth seal is that with the opening of the sixth seal that follows it, the declarations of God's judgments begin all over again. And that continues to be the characteristic of the other judgments in the tribulation. So the, the question is, what is the real purpose of the revelation that we find with the opening of the fifth seal? Some have simply stated it's just a interlude in judgments, which one is allowed to view a heavenly altar to see where all the martyrs have gone. I tend to lean the other way in saying perhaps it introduces the fact to all of us that no one will be able to avoid the consequences of the far-reaching impact of the seal judgments as each one is broken. Now, the idea of heaven as a temple of God is common in Jewish thought. For example, Psalms chapter 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. That's a common <coughs> excuse me, thought. In fact, if you remember, <coughs> excuse me, back early in Revelation, we looked at the worship that was going on 
God the Father on the throne, the Lamb being Jesus, and then the 24 elders and the four living creatures all gathered around. It's like almost like a worship. Well, it is a worship service, one that never stops. So the question is, what kind of altar was it? And here what it comes down to, an altar of a burnt offering or the altar of incense. Now, the altar of burnt offering or the sacrifice were made in the tabernacle and in the temple. They throw the sacrifice on top. They would, they would split it open and the blood would fall down the sides of the altar and to the bottom of it. Now, they say that because when he looks at the altar, he sees the souls underneath it. The reason blood was so important because blood contained the life or the soul of the flesh. And there's a description that he says, I saw underneath. So perhaps it was like the altar a burnt offering. Because their untimely deaths, from God's perspective, is a sacrifice. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I'm already poured out as a drink offering at the time of my departure, and the time for my departure has come. Some point out perhaps the altar of incense, because incense is the symbolic of the prayers of the saints that go up before God as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And then you look back at what they say in verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? So it's like a prayer going up to God asking, how long? Now listen to me very carefully. You don't really have to identify this altar with either of those two. It's unnecessary. It's sufficient to recognize there's an altar that he sees and the souls of martyrs are underneath it crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Where do these souls come from? Some argue they represent all the martyrs of church history going back to Stephen and going forward. Some would go further and say it's all people who have died in Christ, all the dead saints. However, that does not fit the context. Once again, looking at verse 10. We'll get there in a moment. Why were they slain or slaughtered? Look at the rest of verse 9. Because of the word of God and their testimony which they maintained. That's why they were killed. They gave their lives in faithfulness to God as revealed in and through Christ. Martyred for their obedience to God and their testimony to Jesus. That's why they were killed. We don't see that here in America, at least not yet. But let me ask you this question. This came to me. How far are you willing to go? That's a very serious question. When someone's holding a gun to your head and say, denounce Christ, what are you going to do? And that's one thing they have a gun pointed at my head. I have my wife and my three daughters and my grandchildren. We must wrestle with these now because the time is coming when this can be reality. The church is presented as a witnessing church throughout the entire book of Revelation. These martyrs did not flee for their lives. They did not compromise the gospel. They maintained their witness in perhaps the most difficult circumstances of all. They would not compromise. They did not run. 
You know, when persecution hits, there's always three responses. One, people will deny their faith. Deny it. Two, people will compromise their faith. Or three, people will stand firm in their faith. Do you know why the Soviet Union really fell, in my opinion? They tried to stomp out Christianity in the old Soviet bloc, and it never could happen. Why? Because it spread like wildfire. They could not stop it. They could not contain it. And for that system of government to work, people can't have any intrinsic worth or value. You have to become part of the system, what you can do for the common good. But Christianity says, no, you have worth as an individual. You have value because you're a created being by God. So much so that when you rebelled against him, he sent his son to pay the sacrifice, which you could not pay, so you could have a relationship with him and spend eternity in heaven with him. And in verse 10, we see what they are saying. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who drove upon the earth? That right there tells me that these are people who have been martyred during the tribulation. Because the ones who martyred them apparently are still on the earth because they say in their cry out, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who drill upon the earth? If it was martyrs from a long time ago, those people already have passed away. So apparently, these are people who die during the tribulation for their faith. Now, the idea of divine vindication of the people of God is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 79, verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight, vengeance for the blood of your servants, which, you, which has been shed. Now, it's interesting when you look at that prayer. I mean, look what they're saying. They want God to judge them and avenge them. And some would mark this with stark contrast with the prayer of Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, they're stoning him to death. It says, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Then he died. This guy is getting stoned to death with rocks. This probably doesn't take, it's not instantaneously. And as he goes to his knees, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How about the words of Christ himself upon the cross? Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Shortly thereafter, he closed his eyes and gave up his spirit. See, this call for vengeance is not what one would anticipate from a believer of the New Testament. We're told to look the other way, told to turn the other cheek and to be peacemakers. But when we look at the text closely enough, we will see they're not requesting an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. See, they know the certainty of God's judgment. They know that God's judgment is going to happen upon the earth. And that it's the full purpose of God to avenge their blood on the inhabitants of the earth. They're simply asking, how long before all this happens? You could say they're looking for divine justice. 
How many of us in this room really believe, if you said a five, say amen, you can raise your hand, that Jesus is truly coming back one day? If we believe that to be true, and this is going to happen before all that, which gets into post, pre, and mid-tribulation, which requires a whole other discussion, what are we doing about it? Do we act more like people who want to see revenge on people that are lost? I mean, how are we getting here to begin with? How do we become saved from this wrath of God? How, how did that happen? Do we pay a price? Did we do something special? Do we have special talents? Are born in a special nation? No. We responded to the free gift of salvation through, Christ, through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing that we could ever do. Say no, God's judgment is coming. Brothers and sisters, I'm convicted, I was convicted hard this week that the church in America, we got to quit playing games and realize eternity is real. These things are real. People are going to die. People will end up in hell. And we've been given the great privilege and honor to tell as many people as we possibly can how to be saved from all that and spend eternity with God and his angels with all the saints. There's a biblical scholar, his last name is Sweet. He wrote this, quote, The spirit of their cry seems regrettably pre-Christian. This, however, is not a matter of attitudes to people in daily life, but of God's cause, which seems to go by default. It is a language of not private revenge, but of public justice. End of quote. I mean, after all, if God cannot stand sin and sin must be punished, the wages of sin is death. It seems to tell us that there is a day of reckoning coming and coming soon. One last thing I'd like to point out in verse 10 is how they appeal to God. They call him one who's holy and true. He is totally separate from all evil, he will vindicate with integrity. Vindication, not bitter revenge, is the theme. Strong terms referring to the absolute authority and power of God. Not a lower point for ethics, but rather a high point for divine justice. God means what he says. Just because he hasn't acted yet doesn't mean he's not able to or he doesn't want to, it means that his long-suffering patience is still out there waiting for more people to come to his son because his will is that none should perish but to all come to repentance. Look at the response in verse 11 to their cry. It says, there, were given, there was given to them a right robe and they were told that they should rest for a while, little while longer until the number would be complete for their fellow servants and their brethren who were going to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So there's a response to how long? Well, there's some more people going to have to die first, the same way you were, is the answer they were given. They're given a white robe. And that white robe was floor length, a robe of dignity, it was white to symbolize 
holiness and purity. They would be comforted and rewarded by such a distribution from the hand of God. We see that the redeemed before the throne are arrayed in right robes, chapter 7, verse 9. In fact, later in that same chapter, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Later on in that chapter, by the way, John says he looked and saw the multitudes that could not be counted, people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. Little scholar points out the right robe assigned each of these modern spirits is a pledge of future and final glory and a consoling proof that no judgment awaits them. They're instructed to wait until the number is complete. That seems to suggest that God has ordained there's going to be martyrs from the tribulation, a specific number. They are told to rest. Rest in the knowledge that they belong to God, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. God's predetermined timetable will not end, will not come until the number is reached. And this is emphasis on God's sovereignty. He has it all planned out. He tells them to wait. There's more going to be killed like you are. And when that number's complete, you'll know. Not a very consoling answer, though, is it? Although they are given right robes. God will vindicate them in the proper time. Do you remember back in the Gospels? After Pilate thought this would quiet the crowd, he had Christ taken off and beaten. Beaten with rods and also with the cat of nine tails with a whip and some articles of metal on the end of them and they would lash them and grab on and tear flesh right away. And they brought him back. He was almost dead at that point. In fact, there's many accounts in ancient literature you can read how people would actually die there because the loss of blood and everything would be so tremendous. But my point being, he's standing there and he tells the crowd, look, look at him. This is my translation. Look at him. Here he is. And they're still yelling for him to be crucified. And Pilate looks at him and says, don't you know I have the power to save your life or condemn it? And what did Jesus say in response? The only power you've been given is from above. The greater sin is the people crying out for my, to put me to death, not you. So he was telling Pilate, you think you have the authority, but the authority really lasts with my father, and he's allowing you this right now. Nothing you've done on your own. I thought of that in preparation for this message. The time's coming, everything's going to be set straight. When every wrong will be vindicated. As the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It's a linear idea of time. Most secular people will tell you that Time repeats itself, and we hear that discussed with, uh, we talk about fashion. You know, the 80s have come back. Some of these young kids are wearing mullets. Oh, man. Hope parachute pants don't come back. That's a whole other issue. But it goes around and around. But a, a, a truly Christian worldview will tell you lot, time is linear. Beginning of time, 
the end of time, somewhere out here, and in the middle of it all is the cross of Christ. What God is doing now, he's pushing, he's guiding, and directing all time in, a, in a one direction to the Pacific point when he's going to send his son back, when all this will start. And only God the Father knows when that is. Jesus says he doesn't know. Jesus told us the angels don't know. Only God the Father knows. And here's my point. It's coming very soon. And if this grabs your attention as not the most happiest sermon, it's not. It's a warning text. It's telling us to watch out and exhort us what we need to do. There's a costliness to faithfulness. Even in John's day when he wrote this book, he was exiled to Patmos. Throughout history, faithfulness to the word of God and to one's testimony has often proven costly. The world today may seem it's in a tailspin towards its end, but it's the work of the sovereignty of God, that linear view of time. Nothing that's happening right now catches God off guard. He goes, oh, I knew that was going to happen. When you confess your sins before God, he goes, oh, I didn't know you didn't do that. He knows everything. And we confess, we're simply agreeing with God, yes, I sinned against you. We must be ready. We must be on the alert for the coming is nearer each day, by each breath, by each heartbeat. You think things are bad now as you look around the world stage. As Paul Harvey would say, we must consider the rest of the story. This is going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. So my question to you, are you ready? Have you given your life to Christ? Not how many times you attend church, not how many times you give to the church. Have you given your life? Second of all, are you being faithful in your witness? Have you made it a firm stance in your heart and mind, if that time comes, I will not, I will not, I will not forsake my faith. And I want to tell you, it's, this is be honest, that's not the most easiest thing to say. Well, it's probably easier to say than to do, but I believe the Holy Spirit will give you what you need in that moment. Reading that book, The Foxborough Martyrs, there is a person tied up to a stake. They light the fire. And as the fire starts lapping against his flesh, he is singing a hymn of praise to God. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not him. Being a human being like me, I imagine he'd be crying out in extreme pain. But God graciously gave him the Spirit. And lastly, as I started, how far are you willing to go? We were never meant to be passive, to go to our little nice churches, sing our little songs, and go back and act like nothing's going on. People we pass every day could possibly be going to hell because they don't know Christ. Think about that for a second. 
I was headed the same way. And so one day, my wife, sitting to my left or to your right, said, we need to go back in church. I heard the gospel all my life. I told her never set foot in church again. Now, behind the scenes was my mama praying every night. And one day on a Wednesday night, I know what I needed to do. So I gave my life to Christ. My life hasn't been the same since. I didn't do anything special. I didn't give a bunch of money. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't do all that stuff. I simply came and said, I need Jesus. And the rest is history. Does this scare you at all? Divine justice. God is merciful. He's forgiving. And he has amazing grace. But God is a jealous God. He tells us that. He's a God of wrath and judgment. And what ties all that together is his righteousness. No one will be able to stand on that day and say, I didn't know. Specifically, are you in here this morning? You're given a chance to respond. Won't be able to make an excuse. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to talk very real to you in this moment about what is coming. That's the reason why we can sing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I was once lost but now I'm found how about you heavenly father we thank you for this day we thank you for your word father we know that the day of reckoning is coming We read your word, and Father, you have spelled it out in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation does bring us comfort, but it also frightens us, Father. It, we read about death and destruction. Father, my prayer is today that everyone in this room, everybody in the sound of my voice knows that indeed they are a follower of Christ. That they know without a shadow of a doubt where they're going. And I pray for those who profess to be Christians that as we continue this study that it will be burning in our hearts giving us more motivation to go out and tell others before it's everlasting too late. Father, right now, search our own hearts and search our own minds and see if there's any wicked way in us that we may confess and repent from them. We thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness, your long-suffering. Have mercy, mercy on us, O oh God. Continue to speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?